are listening to Graceway's weekly message podcast. We hope that this message encourages you to know and enjoy God, find friends, discover your purpose, and make a difference in your community. Enjoy the message. So we've spent the last month or so not counting Super Sweet Sunday, just talking about the early church and who she was and what she believed and how she acted. We started in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, went to Acts 10 and 15, where the church kind of realizes the gospel is for everybody. Even the Gentiles get in. Even the people far, far, far from God, the gospel is for them. And over the next month or so, I want to look at kind of what I'm calling practical Christianity. Uh, Practical Christianity in what's known as the Pauline epistles. These are the books that the Apostle Paul wrote This is the guy in Acts 9 we're introduced to as Saul. God radically saves him, calls him. And Saul really plants uh, pretty much all of the churches that we now benefit from. Kind of the beginning of our family tree was started by the apostles, including Paul. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. And if you read through his books, you know that he likes to do this thing where he starts with God. He starts with who God is and what God's done and what's true about God. And then there's this point in the letter where he says, so because of that, because of everything that's true about God, let's talk about what needs to be true of you. And he gets into these really practical things about, about our beliefs, our relationships, our finances. And so, so we want to do that. I want to I be as practical with you as I can. And I want to start in the book of Romans today. So if you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 12. We'll be there. If you don't have a Bible, love to give you one. Just stop at the next steps desk and we have one for you. But Romans is the first of the Pauline epistles in sequence, but it's the fifth that he actually wrote And in Romans, Paul has spent the first 10 chapters just talking about how bad sin is and how great the grace of God is. That's really all that is occurring. And in Romans chapter 11, he starts talking about how incredible it is that God would choose the nation of Israel to be his covenant people and how amazing it is that that covenant gets extended to the Gentiles, that the gospel is for everyone. And he ends chapter 11 in verse 33, and he he, he launches into this moment of praise. It's actually pretty well known, and we just pull it out of context. Here it is. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable, as Mike Tyson likes to say, are his ways. Y'all all right? Just seeing if y'all are awake. You got an extra hour of sleep. Are y'all sleepy? You good? Okay, some of us, some of us are. Okay, for he who has, who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so we, we read this verse a lot of times. We think, oh, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about God's, no, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about how incredible it is that everybody gets in on on the grace of God. And then you come over to Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, and it it says this, Romans 12 and verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, because of what he's just said about the gospel in the first 10 chapters and then in chapter 11, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, some of your translations say, in view of the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some of your translations say, which is your reasonable service. 
Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul's going to talk about this phrase, a living sacrifice, and he's going to start with this phrase, therefore, in light of the gospel, this is how you should live. And it's important for us to just make very, very clear you don't get to talk about what people ought to do before you tell them about the new life they have in Jesus. We don't, we don't say do the right thing. They're not capable of doing the right thing until the Holy Spirit is a part of their life. They've received the gospel. And then once you've received new life in Jesus, then new things begin to happen. But Paul doesn't do what a lot of churches do. He's just say, just be better. Just try harder. Just be more religious. Be more moral. Just, just be more upright. You can't be if you don't have new life in Jesus. At the very same time, once you have new life in Jesus, it's perfectly natural to expect that you would want different things, act certain ways, be a different kind of person. So Paul has gone to great lengths to talk about how incredible the gospel is, and he says, now in light of all that, in light of all that, I want to make an appeal to you. And that word appeal, it isn't a command. Paul likes to boss people around, normally in the New Testament, just tell them what they ought to do. That's not what this word is. It's, it's, it's an, an urging. It's almost an asking because the point of it, listen, isn't your obedience. The point is your willingness. In light of the gospel, he's saying, I want you to be willing. And then he kicks into this kind of temple language that's not very normal to us. It's not very contextual to us. We don't go to a temple. We come to a church. But Paul starts talking about this this concept of somebody coming to the tabernacle in the Old Testament or coming to the temple in the Old Testament and bringing some type of offering. Now, I have told you before, there's five different offerings in the Old Testament. This is two of them that he's going to reference here. So this isn't a sin offering. A sin offering was when somebody would go to their flock and they would pick out the absolute, perfect, most spotless, most unblemished lamb, right? And they would carry it to the temple, and they would lay that lamb on the altar, and the priest would cut its throat, and the blood would spill out over the altar, and it was to signify the covering of sin from a spotless lamb on this person's life. Now, this was significant because it was to point us forward to the spotless lamb of God who doesn't cover the sins of the world but takes away the sins of the world. And so time after time after time, They would carry a lamb to the altar, they would set it down, and they would be painting a picture. One day, a lamb's going to come, and he's not going to cover our sin, he's going to cleanse our sin. And we're not going to have to keep coming back to this. So you realize that every time you come to the altar, and with that lamb, you know next Friday I'm going to be right back here, right? i got to come back, i got to get another altar, because sin that's covered isn't dealt with. But in Jesus, our sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. Literally, confession many times that isn't for God because some of us are confessing sins that God doesn't even remember in Jesus. Your sin is cleansed. Your sin is gone in Jesus. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a burnt offering, which had a very similar genesis. You go to your barn or pen or wherever sheep are kept, okay? You get this spotless lamb. You take it to the temple, You lay it down on the altar, they cut its throat, and then they light it on fire. I'm not kidding. That's actually what they did, okay? And it wasn't to deal with your sin. It was to signify 
worship. And that whole lamb, the whole body of that lamb was consumed. It had this incredible aroma that was supposed to go up to God. And it was to say to God, God, I just want you to know I love you. I want you to know I worship you. I want you to know you're incredible. That's, that's the offering that Paul's talking about here. This sacrifice. And Paul says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to be a living dead thing, which is supposed to jolt you. Like, what, what does that even mean? Like, I, I know the, wait, the walking dead, but I don't know the living dead, right? It's supposed to bring you into this paradox. And, and here's what's interesting about this. The old sacrifices were simple and clean and easy in this way. When you took a lamb and put it on the altar and you cut its throat, where did it go? Not a trick question. Where did it go? It just stayed there, right? Because it was what? Because it was dead. Yeah. Paul is saying, back in the day, they made this sacrifice, but I want you to be a living sacrifice. In the old times, you kill it, it's dead. A living sacrifice is prone to want to hop down off the altar from time to time. A, li a, a, a living sacrifice doesn't want to stay up on the altar and, and die. It, it wants to hop off and live its life and do its thing and be in charge and all those kind of things. And so Paul says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you, Christian, in light of the gospel, to put yourself on the altar, to volunteer yourself in worship, your whole body to be entirely devoted to God and to Jesus because of what he's done for you. This is an incredible idea, a living sacrifice. And so what it means, it means that the Christian life is that you have to put to death your right to live life as you choose. When I become a follower of Jesus and I say, I receive the grace of God in my life, God says, that's the good news. Here's the tough news. I want you to put yourself on that altar again and again and again and again, and I want you to die to yourself in the same way that I had Jesus die for you. Yeah. And being a living sacrifice means that I put to death the idea that I belong to myself. I put to death the idea that I know best what should happen in my life. I put to death all of the things that I think make me me, and I give them to God. And here's the thing about this process. It feels like death, because it is. When Paul says, I want you to take up your cross and die to yourself daily, it's not a concept. It feels like death. It feels like death to say to God, you know best, and I trust you. Doesn't it? It, it feels like death to say, God, I see this thing in your word, and I don't like it. I don't like what you say about marriage. I don't like what you say about sexuality. I don't like what you say about money. I don't like what you say about a lot of things, but... Even if I don't like it, and I'm not even sure I believe it, I'm going to do it because I don't get to choose anymore. I don't get to choose anymore. It feels like death, but on the other side of it is life. This is why it's called a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that le leads to you living in the fullness of the life that God intends for you. The practical Christian life begins with a work of God. Do you understand this? Your faith started with God. It didn't start with you. You were dead. You didn't have faith as a dead person. You weren't seeking God. God was seeking you. And so your faith began with God, and you responded to a work of God. And the first step in your response is your worshipful willingness. To do what? To get up on the altar and stay there. Your worshipful willingness in light of grace 
I intend, I am willing to lay down my life because I believe that it is reasonable for what has been done for me, for me to pour out my life for God. For me to be consumed and for Jesus to remain. For me to die and for the life of God to live through me. And I'm going to stay up on that altar even though it's literally killing me because it's reasonable for me to respond that way. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's saying. Thank you to both of you who agree with that. Okay, now without this worshipful willingness, listen, you cannot experience the grace of transformation. You cannot experience change if you aren't willing to get up on that altar. Some of you you say, I just don't feel like God's doing anything in my life. I don't know why. Love you so much. I know why. Because you ain't on the altar. Because you're doing it your way. Because you think you're right. Because you won't submit. Because you're living, but you want to sacrifice. That's why. And because the transformation, the blessing, and the filling, that all of the things that we say that we want in church, we give you the, 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 the punchline, but not the price tag. Come on, somebody. The, the punchline is, yes, there is life. Yes, there is filling. Yes, there is blessing. Yes, there is provision. It's just going to cost you everything. It's just going to cost you everything. So willingness is the starting place. God's work and your willingness, your willingness to die to yourself, your willingness to do it God's way. It's a starting place, but it's not the end. It's not the end. So let's level with one another, shall we? Let's be honest with one another. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know God, you're following God, uh, you believe what I just said, because it's in the Bible, right? So you're like, yes, amen, pastor, that's good. We, we get it, we like it, all that kind of thing. So here's my question. So why is it if our belief is so concrete that our behavior is so inconsistent? Why, why is it that our doctrine is so sound, but the devotion of our life is so intermittent? Why is it that you can have great beliefs and not have great behavior? Why is that? And I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, where he's like, yeah, man, I know the right thing to do, and I want to do the right thing, but I keep doing the wrong thing. And I know some stuff that I shouldn't be doing, but I keep wanting to do it. I don't know what's going on. I got great beliefs, but my behavior, I'm struggling with it. And so Paul is going to, in Romans 12 and verse 2, tell us why that is such a problem. He's going to tell us that the space between our beliefs and our behavior are our thoughts. The space between our beliefs and our beliefs showing up in our actions is our thoughts. And he uses this phrase, be transformed by the renewing of your doctrine. Is that what it says? No, he doesn't. By, by bolstering your beliefs. Nope, not what he says. By putting more effort into your moral and upright religious behavior. No, no, by the renewing of your mind, by changing the way that you think. Transformation begins with a willingness to put yourself on the altar and do it God's way, and then a changing of your mind and your thinking and your mindset. So let's talk about the power of the mind. We talk a great deal in church about beliefs. We talk a great deal about behaviors. 
This is why we have so much content, especially in the West. Pastor, we need more books. Pastor, we need more curriculum. Pastor, we need more discipleships. Pastor, we need more, we need more Bible. We need more studies. We need because we because beliefs are important. Because doctrine is important. Because theology is important. Don't you know this, Tim? Yes, I know. I do. I know. I also know that I know a lot of people with great, substantial, highly curriculumized, not a word, but you know what I mean, <laughs> doctrine that every four years act like the rest of the United States. How is this? I thought your beliefs were so solid. I thought beliefs were the point, right? And I know, I know people who, they, their, their thing is, is behavior. We need to be activists. We need to be about justice. We need to be about, you know, doing the right thing at the right time, the right way with the right people. This is important. Our behavior is important. Tam, don't you know this? Yes, I know. But I also know that there's lots of people who are trying to do the right thing, and, 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 and they don't know anything about Jesus. They don't know anything about the gospel. They don't know anything about the Trinity. So it's confusing. How can your beliefs be so solid and your behavior be so funky? And your behavior sometimes be solid, but your behavior be so, or your, your beliefs be so kind of all over the place. And Paul says, here's why, because there's something that undergirds and connects them, our thought life. Paul talks about his mind all the time in the epistles, and Paul knows that your life reflects the thoughts that you think. Your life reflects the thoughts that you think our life is always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. Our life is always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. You know this. You know this. You know that when I say things like, you need to trust God with your stuff. Amen, pastor, we need to be generous. But your thoughts say, I ain't got enough money to be generous, man. I ain't got enough money to be generous. And I grew up poor and I got a scarcity mindset and if God would just give me more stuff I would trust him more with the more stuff he gave me and that ain't true that's about you having some messed up mindsets and thought processes that contradict your beliefs and show up in your behaviors when I say you need to grow in your generosity and you say something like why are you always talking about money You have thoughts that contradict your beliefs and show up in your behavior. You want me to go on? Here's another one. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And you're like, yes, pastor. Right, babe? Yep, this is so good. And in your mind, you're like, not this woman. <laughs> you must be tripping if you think that I am going to be capable of loving her the way that Jesus loved any of y'all. Yeah, yeah, pastor, I believe it, I believe it. But your thoughts, before you ladies laugh too hard, wives, submit to your husbands. And you say, you must have lost your mind. This brother struggles to tie his shoelaces. You want me to trust him with our finances and our future and our kids and my, well, yeah, no, no, mm -mm. That, that's, not, that's not happening. You see, most people in church have church belief, and then they have their honest belief. And I get a crack a week at you on your church belief, but it ain't enough to make it till Tuesday for most of us. Because your thoughts are the direction that your life is headed. Listen to 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, talking about this, this, this fleshly body, we're not waging war according to flesh. In other words, like, we try to do things in our own strength. 
The weapons of our warfare are not, are not of the flesh, okay? They're not guns and drones and ring doorbells, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Here it is. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every, what's the next word? Every thought captive to obey Christ. Most of our battles do not take place in our beliefs or our behaviors. They take place in our minds. And I'm convinced that the enemy knows this. I'm convinced that the enemy will be perfectly fine with you and your good doctrine with your appropriate version of the Bible under your arm. Yeah, man, take it. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk about substitutionary atonement. Yeah, yeah. Come. Hey, you should take a class on that. <laughs> you should learn more stuff that you're not going to apply to your life. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, no, no, no. Take, take a class on revelation. Yeah. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. I just want to know stuff. Yeah, cool. That's great. Do it. And I think the enemy will let you, will let you with your behavior feel awfully proud of yourself. Yeah, man, you're good. Woo. Yeah, you got a great heart for your community, very justice-oriented. That's, that's awesome. You should focus a lot on your beliefs and your behavior. Just don't, don't, don't think about your mind. Don't, don't consider your mind. Don't defend your mind. Don't fill your mind. Don't, don't be conscious of your doctrine. You need more doctrine. You need to do more stuff as long as you don't defend your mind. Listen, if you talk to any physical trainer, they'll say to you, you can't outwork out a bad diet. You can't, you're like, what? <laughs> Why has nobody told me this? I thought that if I walked three times a week, I could outwalk my McDonald's diet. Nope, you can't. You can't do it. And you can't outbelieve or outbehave your bad thoughts. And I don't mean bad immoral, I mean bad not true. But, but in the church, what do we do? Believe more, believe more, believe more, believe more, behave better, behave better, behave better, behave better. And Paul says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. You gotta be willing, and then you gotta worry about your thoughts. You gotta worry about your thoughts. So how do we change our mind? How do we change our mind? How do we change how we think? Paul uses this phrase, renew our mind. And we think about this in the spiritual. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's awesome, man. No, no, you got a new mind, new thoughts, new mindsets, new principles, and you need to lay hold of those. So I want to give you three really practical ways to renew your mind, to defend your mind. And I promise you, if you'll start filling your mind differently, thinking about your mind differently, defending your mind differently, you'll see God changing not just your mind, but your whole life. Okay? So first off, I want you to think about your thoughts. I want you to think about your thoughts. So your emotions are involuntary. You see your emotions after they have already happened. You, wanna, you want me to prove it to you? Okay. You're driving down the road, pulling out of church. <laughs> you got your fish on the back. You got your Bible in the back seat. You're talking about the sermon. And somebody pulls out in front of you, and you have an involuntary emotion that comes directly out of your mouth and affects your digits. <laughs> Telling people how awesome they are, you're number one, just want you to know. And then your wife says to you, because that's normally what it is, babe, we just left church. 
And what do you do? Oh, hey, uh. or you double down. Woman, you see the guy out in front of me? Right? You're watching the football game. You're an educated, well-adjusted, emotionally intelligent human being. Pat Mahomes throws a sidearm deal into triple coverage to lose, hypothetically speaking, the AFC championship game. And you stand up in front of your whole family and start screaming at the TV like Pat knows you, can hear you, or cares what you think. What's happening? Emotions are involuntary. You can think about them after they've occurred to you. Subconscious thoughts are also involuntary. Some of us, when I talk about giving, you're not even consciously thinking. You're, you're, you are processing how it felt to you to grow up in the home you grew up in. And immediately you have fear around generosity, even though your beliefs are that you should be generous. And so what we need to do is we need to learn that both of those, your subconscious thoughts and your emotions are involuntary, but you can consciously pick them up once they have occurred and think about them. You, you can pick them up. You can get home on the, once, once you've calmed yourself down and you can walk into your bedroom and you can say, why did I lose my mind at a stranger driving down the road? Why am I so over-identified with a football team? Why do I get nervous talking about generosity? Why this woman that I love with all of my heart, when I'm supposed to love her as Christ loved the church, do I automatically kick into all of her faults or all of his faults or all of the reasons that I shouldn't? What? You got to pick it up and you got to look at it and think about it. Listen, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to save you a counseling appointment right now. Because that's what a counselor does. You had this happen. You vent for about 20 minutes, and the counselor says something like this. Well, what do you think about that? <laughs> to which you say, if I knew that, I wouldn't be paying you $120 for you to sit here and ask me dumb questions. And then they start taking notes. You're like, what do you take? What'd you write on the paper? And you have an involuntary emotion, right? Yeah, yeah, what do you think about that? How do you feel about that? All they're doing is helping you pick up what's coming out of your mouth, that's coming out of your mind, that's coming out of your soul. So here's how Paul says it, Philippians chapter four. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, in order for you to obey this text, what do you have to do? You have to think about how you define all the things that he just said. How would I know if something's true? How would I know if something's honorable? How would I be able to identify if something's just or pure or lovely? And then you would have to think, when's the last time that I thought about those things based on the definition that I just thought about? And the vast majority of us, we never take inventory of our thoughts. We crash into a counselor's office or a church service and we don't know why we're doing what we're doing because we don't know how we're thinking what we're thinking. Because we're busy. And because if we're entirely honest, we don't want to know until it gets broken. And what I'm trying to help you do is I'm trying to help you experience the truth of God in your life before it gets broken. Before it gets broken, take the time to think about your thoughts. Take the time to think about what makes you who you are, why you respond the way that you do. Number two, I want you to monitor what you let in. 
monitor what you let in, 2 Corinthians 10, and take every thought captive. Why? So you can obey Christ. And this is not only about what you keep out, it's about what you let in. So there are certain things that you just never want them to be in your mind. Because there are certain content that, look, under any definition, it's immoral. Right? It's, it's immoral. And it's funny because the church emphasizes this immoral content thing. We burn CDs, right? Bring me all your CDs and let's burn them. We boycott movies. We post stuff on social media that nobody reads or cares about because we think we are advocating against immoral content. But here's what's crazy about it. We never explain to anybody why. Never. We never say to our kids, no, you can't watch that movie because. We say, you can't watch that movie, that's trash. Why is it trash? What, what makes it trash? We never explain the power of the mind. We never explain that content creates mindsets. We never explain that words have power, ideas have power, art has power, and it's the power of life and death. We never say to our kids, the reason you can't watch that movie about Halloween is because you're letting death into your mind. We never say to our kids, no, you can't listen to that music because the content on that music is creating a mindset in you. Not that it's only that it's wrong, it's not helpful to you. It's destructive to you. And because we don't teach our kids, they're listening to Dr. Dre when we thought they were listening to Toby Mac. And I'm sorry that the best rapper that the Christian community has given is a white guy from Tennessee. Okay, we're trying. We're trying. We're trying. I mean, but this is what we say to our kids. I don't know why it's bad, and I don't know why it's not very good. Just listen to not as good stuff because the good stuff is bad and the bad stuff is good. And when they're confused, it's because you're confused. <laughs> so to say, honey, there's certain things that, that I never want them to be in your mind. Because what gets into your mind creates mindsets, and mindsets create words, and words create, affect your relationship, and your re relationships affect your legacy, and that's why. And there's some things that are just immoral. Like, there's certain music you should never listen to. There's certain movies you should never see. Oh, that's so prudish, Pastor. No, I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to protect you. It's amazing to me at Halloween, some of the stuff y'all watch. Like what? The movie is literally about killing people. What are you doing? It's amazing to me, some of the video games you let your kids play just because you need a moment of silence. Crazy words, doing crazy stuff, doing... It's, what, you're letting death into your children's minds. You're letting death into your, into your home. It's not prudish, it's wise. It's wise. There are certain things that are immoral, and there are other things, guys, that are just unhelpful. They're not wrong, they're just unhelpful. Like country music. It's not wrong, it's just unhelpful. Okay? It's just not. It's not helpful. <laughs> it's not wrong. Just... Why? Why would you do that to your soul? <laughs> Certain movies, yeah, they're not wrong. The rating, 
Yeah, that's fine. It's still not helpful. There's certain news sources and quantities of news. It's not wrong. It's just not helpful. There's certain content and amount of social media. It's not wrong. It's just not helpful. Take your thoughts captive by managing the content that you're letting into your mind. If you're constantly scrolling, not only will we get carpal tunnel, <laughs> trying to save you from carpal tunnel, all right, but your mind is being affected. You're not putting a guard at the gate of your mind. You're just scrolling. And your brain is faster than your thumb. Okay. So I want you to think about your thoughts. I want you to monitor what you let in. I want you to manage your meditation. You say, I don't meditate. Hang on. Psalm 19 and verse 4, David, the man after God's own heart, says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. There are certain words that are not acceptable to God. There are certain thoughts that are not acceptable to God. Let, let, let my thoughts and my words, and notice he connects them, because it's a thought before it's a word, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 119 and verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts, and I will fix my eyes on your ways. Eight times in Psalms 119, he talks about meditating on God's precepts and fixing what he looks at on God's ways. Psalm 143 and verse 5, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. This isn't new age meditation where I empty the mind. This is biblical meditation where I fill the mind. I exercise my mind. I fill it. I focus. I fix my thoughts on what? On what's acceptable to God. On what God has done. On what God has promised. On what God has been up to. On what God's providing. On how much I can trust God. Listen to me. It's wild. You say to people, tell me what God's been up to in your life. Uh, I say, tell me about the midterm elections. Oh, well. You have to sit down. I got a lot to say. Tell me about... Tell me about the college football game yesterday. Tell me about inflation. Tell me about Ukraine. Tell me, I just go on and on. You got lots to say. Tell me what God's done in your life. And it's not that God hadn't done anything. It's that you haven't fixed your mind on what God has done. So when it comes up that you need God to show up because your mind is fixed on other things that are either not wise, not helpful, or not good, your mind isn't filled with what's necessary for you to trust God with what comes next. This isn't about positive thinking. No, no, no. This is about intentionally thinking on, filling with, focusing on truth. Colossians 3, set your mind on things above. Set it. Not on things on the earth. Romans 8, set your mind on things of the Spirit. Set it. Fix it. Lock it down. Don't fill your mind with foolishness. Is it, it's wrong. It's not wrong. It's just not helpful. You need better content. You need better quality. You need to be full of better things. You need to have a better vision for who you are and for what God wants to do in your life and just... It's not wrong. It just isn't going to help you. What God has for you is more, and what the enemy has for you is more. 
I listened to a, uh, an author that I've read a good amount about. He actually just reached away, uh, passed away from cancer, but he's kind of famous for telling this story of a man who had a conversation with one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the country. And the business leader uh, was telling his story and this moment that he believed was the turning point in his life. So this business leader was raised by a single mom in the Midwest, my people, right? He was struggling in school, also my people, <laughs> just bored out of his mind, right? I don't care what happened at the battle of blah 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 right? Sorry, teachers, I do pray for you every day. He's failing out, that wasn't me, but he promises his mom, is stressed out about him, that he would take a test called the SAT. And so in the summer of his junior year, he takes this standardized test that's two parts, verbal and math, each representing 800 points. 800 plus 800 equals... It's amazing. Same thing happened. This side of the room answered, and y'all, you didn't know there was going to be questions on the test today? You needed a calculator? You need a heads up to get... Okay, anyways. So this poor, struggling, out of 1,600 points, poor, struggling, failing out of school kid, just... Trying to be a good son gets a 1480 out of 1600. Hello, right? 1400. And he's stunned because 1480 is what smart people get. And because he's not smart, he goes home and his mom accuses him of cheating. (laughs) Because she knows her kid. Don't be all, oh, you do the same thing with your kids, all right? You must have cheated, son. You aren't that smart. And he says to his mom, Mom, I tried to cheat. I couldn't. I was too dumb to cheat. So I took the test. I got a 1480 out of 1600. This kid has a a problem now because he realizes that he's actually smart. He's got his senior year to go. And so he decides, I'm going to start going to class. And so he starts to go to class. And because he's going to class with kids who go to class, he's not hanging out with kids who skip class. So his, his friend group changes. And the teachers see him showing up week after week, day after day, month after month, and they think maybe we misjudge this kid. And so they start to invest in him with greater intentionality, and they start to teach him and treat him a little bit differently. The kid graduates high school, goes one year to community college, then he goes to Wichita State. All right, all right, all right. finally, <laughs> finally, finally. I got nothing in the first service. I said it was shocking. It was shocking that no one has heard of the Wichita State Shockers. You know what I'm saying? All right, all right, all right. She's all about it. If I keep going, you're going to keep going, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) I didn't hear you saying anything else during the sermon. I say Wichita State. (laughs) Say better stuff. I'll say more stuff, Pastor. That's fair. That's fair. All right, fair enough. Goes to Wichita State, he graduates, then he goes to the Ivy League, and he goes on to become this massively successful businessman. And this is a cool story, right? This great turnaround story, this guy who was always smart and just needed a test to prove it. Yeah? No, that's not the story. It's not the story. Twelve years after this guy's very successful career, he's retired, he's sitting in his home with his wife, and a letter comes in the mail, and it's from the SAT board. (laughs) And they periodically review their procedures and their policies. And the year that he took the test, he's one of 13 kids who was sent the wrong test score. And we have sent you a letter to notify her that your actual score was a 740. (laughs) 
Okay, don't miss this. The businessman, this enormously successful businessman, says to this author, people think my whole life changed when I got that 1480, but actually my whole life changed when I started acting like a 1480. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the point. God says there are certain things that are true about you. God says in Jesus, you're a 1600. <laughs> he says there's things you have, there's things he's changed, there's things that you can do, and if you'll bring yourself willingly under his authority, if you'll take him at his word and act like he, who he says you are, if you'll believe what he says to believe, if you'll do what he says to do, and if you think on, think about, and think like what he says is true, then he'll transform you. And he'll change your life. Not change your life like you earned it. Change your life like he knows you have it. You already are who God says that you are. God knows. He wants you to think on that so you know. Let's pray. God, we love you today. I thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you that every person in you is already changed. They're already a new creature in Jesus Christ. Old things are passed away. Everything is new. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for who you are and what you've done and what it makes us. And God, my prayer today is that you would renew our minds, that we would take you at your word and believe what you say is true and not just believe it on a certain day of the week, but that we would think about it, that we would meditate on it, that we would fix our eyes and our life and our posture and our perspective on who you are and what you've done and what you say is true about us. God, I pray that we would stop worrying so much about what to do and that we would start thinking about who you say we are. God, I pray that you change our minds, that you grow our hearts, that you give us a bigger vision that matches what you're really doing in us and around us. We thank you for it. You're an incredible God. Wouldn't want to serve any other God, wouldn't want to be the son of any other king. I need you to change my mind so I know who I am, so I can do what you've called me to do. I thank you for that as well. Bless everybody in this room. Fill them up with your spirit. Fill them up with truth. Give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear. Be glorified in our lives. We thank you for that as well. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen, amen and amen.